All right, thanks, Eric. All right, so, howdy, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom. Uh, yeah, so I'm a principal at Adobe, and so I launched the first product that we ever released using Lane Startup from end to end. Um, so today, I'm excited to uh, get to share with you guys what we learned in that process, how we applied that to better build customer understanding for a lot of the product development that we've been doing going forward. So let me tell you about that product. It was called Adobe Voice. Um, it's a mobile app and a website that lets people make these like, stunning animated explainer videos. So those are those like two minute narrated videos that you kind of see everywhere on like every organization, startup, or product's web page. That like catchy two minute video, talks about what they're doing, who they're trying to help, um, and uh, you know, and gives you like, some call to action. Um, the difference was that except instead of paying thousands of dollars or spending weeks to make these videos, the app let people make cinematic explainer videos in about 15 minutes for free. Um, it actually, like you just talk in your iPad, it literally like sweetens your voice so you sound like you're in an Apple commercial. <laughs> and maybe they're a bit biased then, but Apple actually named it one of the best apps of the year. Uh, David Pogue, who was a journalist in the New York Times, and now Yahoo, called it one of the simplest, most creative, most joyous apps ever written. And because that's such a low bar, this year Fast Company put simply, Adobe Voice is a godsend. And we're humbled, too. Um, but more importantly, millions of people have used it to share what matters to them, from first graders with autism learning to tell their stories for the very first time, to officials at, at, at different governments all around, the, all around the world, to countless small businesses and nonprofits that want to make an impact. So it's actually grown from a scrappy team to become the basis for an entire new product family that we now call Adobe Spark. So we're actually pretty happy with our first run with Lean Startup. But you can safely assume we made all kinds of mistakes along the way. Uh, so I wanted to share some of those mistakes uh, and what we learned by walking through how we applied those lessons to a second product. But this time, we condensed our original 12-month process into about 12 weeks. So these are the practical tips that I learned from running a stealth lean project that we called Spruce. So, all right, so here's our first problem we got started with Lean Startup. Now, we all know by now, by heart, it's build, measure, learn, right? Literally starts with build. So I've seen so many startup folks and product managers who are using Lean for the very first time tempted to think that's about building something quickly, shoving it in front of users, and then seeing if it sticks. Uh, they start with an exciting business idea or some incredible product feature, um, and, but it's Lean, of course. So maybe they'll throw up a landing page, buy some AdWords, or maybe they'll sit around a coffee shop handing out Starbucks gift cards to random strangers while validating their idea. Uh, and then they'll just A-B test their way to success. The thing is, that rarely works out. Instead, one of two things usually happens. Uh, so we're all can-do positive thinkers here. So let me start with the best case. Uh, in the best case, it's a flaming failure, right? They get no signal, no traction. They, don't, they know they don't have product market fit, and they have to start all over again, right? So I guess that's awesome. Um, so what's the worst case? Well, the second case, the worst case, is the team does hit upon some signal. They happen upon some small patches of random users that might like what they're doing. Uh, they don't really understand why, but they keep on A-B testing small incremental differences. And maybe some metrics grow just slightly. But because all they have is quantitative data, they don't really understand their customer. And a lot of times, they can't even tell you in a sentence who their customer is. It's kind of a good litmus test. So they don't know why things work and why, uh, when they do or why things don't. 
So they basically A-B tested themselves to some local maxima in a very uninteresting place. Not the top of the mountain they wanted to get to, but the top of the little anthill. And it's the worst outcome, not because they're wrong, but because they wasted a lot of time, right? And that's the lifeblood of any startup or pro project. So how do you learn to, how to build a product that people love before you build? So before you build product, you've gotta build empathy. So here are two truths. One, you can't test everything. Quantitative data is great, but you're never going to get enough to answer all of what underlying questions about people's behaviors. Uh, you just don't have enough time. Um, two, every great product is great at solving a problem for people. Right? This is something I'll always come back to. So your first job is to understand those people. So, but who do you talk to first? Right? So learning from the world of design, um, this has actually been a really helpful mantra, which is constraints drive clarity. Right? And it applies in this case as well. Customer constraints drive clarity. So look for people who want a specific result but don't have enough X, right? That's something. Often that's time or money or skill or some other resource that they think is precious that they don't have enough of. In the case of Spruce, I spent a lot of time talking to social media managers and marketers, people wearing lots of hats that were trying to stand out from the crowd um, while we were working on Spark Video. That's why I, you know, these folks are so excited about explainer videos to kind of raise above the noise. But one thing we kept on kind of seeing here and there was infographics. It kept on repeatedly coming up. Like we were hearing about them, we were seeing them on people's social feeds, we see them go viral. It was this growing trend and it seemed really effective at conveying information while grabbing attention. But we also knew that they were pretty hard and expensive to make. We make the tools that people use to make these things, Photoshop, Illustrator, um, and they're really powerful and produce amazing results. But people would actually tell us about, you know, who didn't have those skills, spending hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars in some cases, like making a single graphic. So there's all these people who wanted that result, we thought, but were constrained by not having enough time or skill or money. So that's where we started our customer discovery. So, uh, this is, seems kind of obvious, but it's worth stating, but who you talk to matters. And what that means is, it's a reminder that, <laughs> obvious, but different people are different. And in that, like, you can't just show up at, like, with a post on Craigslist or show up at the Starbucks, uh, unless you're investigating problems related to local marketplaces or coffee shops and places to hang out. Because different people are different, but not only that, the same people in different contexts are very different. So the thing is, we talk a lot about the value of user research, but also the value of user testing, and they are very different things. Building empathy is not about uh, you know, trying to find, figure out if a random average person can find a button in your app. That's what user testing is for. Um, and you can kind of test that with like, assorted random people. Building empathy is specific to individuals um, and trying to figure out and suss out what their differences are, so the different things that drive them and motivate them, uh, the different goals that they might have. But the thing is, there's some good news about this uh, in terms of recruiting customers to talk to. Like, I don't want to make it seem like it's too hard. Um, so one, uh, you probably shouldn't even have to pay your users um, to talk to you. <laughs> because if they're not willing to spend 15 minutes to chat with you to basically help somebody else try and solve their problems, um, it's probably not a problem they care enough about. Uh, okay, so that's good. So you don't have to pay folks. But like, how many folks do you have to recruit, right? So you just, Actually, just plug in your population size, 
the confidence interval, the confidence level, and then the standard deviation you're looking at. Nah, just kidding. <laughs> um, so, you know, what does that n equal? Actually, the answer is five. That's, if anybody argues with me, they're totally wrong. Um, but it's a, it, it is that ballpark. You're not, because qualitative isn't a four-letter word, right? Remember, you're not, right now, at the beginning, you're not looking for statistical significance. Um, you're looking for insights in how particular customers think, and you want it really quickly. Uh, you know, as you start, one of the things you'll find is as you start talking to more and more users, you start hitting diminishing returns in terms of like new information that you're finding. Right now, in this beginning of the process, you're trying to get as much new information as quickly as you can. Um, so another implication of that, besides like you don't have to talk to a million people when you're first uh, trying to find empathy, is that you can also revise your questions every few interviews to improve them based on what you've already learned uh, whenever you feel like you're no longer learning. Right now, this is more psychology. Like this is, yeah, more about people than about numbers. So I focus on that. Third thing, uh, in terms of, oops, <laughs> sorry. So third thing, in terms of uh, making life easier, is actually today, right now, we live in a golden age of low-cost, rapid customer research and recruiting. Um, so here are two things that came into play in a big time for Spruce, for example. So one, um, taking advantage of social media tools and the targeting that they give you, right? On Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, wherever it happens to be. Um, it means it's really easy to find now individuals with very specific interests um, with targeted searches, right? It's not that hard to find a bunch of people now who are really interested in infographics. And then from there, like it's really easy to find related topics, potential alternatives, competitors that people might be using, and then search for those, and um, all in the context of these social media tools. Um, and the cool thing is, once you've found one, even one potential customer that might be interesting for your research, it's really easy to find others like them, right? Following their conversations, their lists, hashtags, basically stalking people, but, um, but it makes it easy to find a lot of folks like them. And the second thing is, it becomes a perfect way to find communities of interest, places where early adopters in a particular, who are interested in a particular thing or a particular problem congregate. Uh, so for us, actually, like the jackpot in terms of communities of interest was hashtag CMGR and hashtag CMGR chat. Basically, community managers who are self-organizing and all their conversations about what they cared about, what their problems are, um, how hard it was to do this or that, um, and why this is such an awesome solution, were all in one place, right? And from there, it became really easy to find not just tens, but like hundreds, thousands of people who fit exactly the profile we were interested in learning about. So take advantage of these tools. Okay, so you found the people. Um, how do you actually get them to participate? Well, the thing is, you can give people something way better than an Amazon gift card, and that's genuine interest. Right? Remember that you're working hard to help the people that you're talking to. Um, and for most of us, it's actually really flattering to have others interested in the problems that like plague us that we're working on. Right? So we just send a note like, hey Val, working on a cool tool for CMGRs, so make creating infographics easy. Love to chat for a few minutes if you have time. Right? Sending out like a half dozen of those a day, um, just like different messages, like not spamming folks, but just genuinely being interested in folks. Invariably, people respond. And it's actually not that hard to get set up your first five, six interviews. Um, over the course of a week, just a week, um, and find enough folks to talk to. So, all right, you've, you've identified the right folks that you're thinking about, you're, you're interested in, uh, you're getting them to participate in your customer interviews, so what do you actually do in these customer interviews, right, these customer problem interviews? Um, so first I wanted to warn you about two things product teams often try that really don't work. Okay, 
So, and I've done some of these, but uh, one of them is don't ask people for what they want, at least not if you expect a helpful answer, because it's not your customer's job to, come to build a product for themselves. That's your job, right? Um, and the other thing is most people are really nice and they'll try to please you. And so <laughs> if you ask if you want this, they'll probably say yes, because they want you to be excited about their response. Um, if you ask, and so try to avoid like this path. Um, the second kind of warning area is uh, personas. So a lot of people use these, um, big companies often fall into this. I've worked at places that have, um, and usually it's like, oh, it takes weeks, maybe months, and then you meet with dozens or hundreds of unique individuals, and then you smoosh them all that potential insight into three to five personas representing average people. Three that ends up in like three PowerPoint decks or three really nice full color printouts that you put up on the wall next to your team. Right? You've probably seen these. Um, meet Sally, she's a 32 year old married lawyer who drives a silver Prius, has 2.5 kids, enjoys yoga and Mediterranean cooking. Um, the thing is, personas are by definition fictitious composite character profiles and that can be dangerous because it's hard to solve real problems for fake people. Aggregating and averaging people takes away the real unique context in which people have problems. And then it just adds clutter about their favorite movie and what's on their Spotify playlist. That's just noise. So what you're worried about when you're deciding on a place, and the thing is, again, individuals are not only different from each other, but they're different at different times, right? So when you're worried about when, you know, uh, what you're worried about when you're deciding like where to go for lunch, it's different from when you're putting together a spreadsheet model, which is different from when you're taking selfies with friends. You're a different person in different settings. Context matters. But thankfully, there is a better way to capture all this empathy. So our society, in fact, every human society throughout history uh, has perfected an incredibly powerful tool to help people build empathy. And that's stories. The one, like the ones we told while sitting around the fire like the ones your grandparents would tell you about like what it was like growing up and the things that mattered to them. Um, like the stories that have lasted for centuries or thousands of years. Um, science has actually proven absorbing stories can help us uniquely build empathy for other people, enabling us to adopt new perspectives. They actually change our brains. And it's not just science, but like art that tells us this. The most compelling and recurring stories all follow the same structure, the same arc. In fact, over 50% of all the movies that come out of Hollywood and countless books from Star Wars to Lion King to Harry Potter all follow the same structure, right? the hero's journey. And so whether our hero is Rey or Simba or Harry, all these powerful arcs have the same elements. There's a character defined by a specific context with some call to adventure, some trigger to answer some calling. You know, what's Harry Potter without his wizarding world? That setting matters. There's stakes, right? Something that they want, a tangible result. You know, he wants to protect his friends from harm, as well as an emotional feeling, like to feel loved, like they belong. What are the things that motivate them? And then they've got problems, um, lots of problems. Uh, time is running out, they don't have enough knowledge, they don't have the right skills. These are the things that every hero's journey has, and you see it over and over again because these are all the pieces it takes for, uh, as we kind of build empathy for somebody trying to overcome a big problem. So guess what? Customer stories, the cu customers also have story arcs, and it's the exact same. A customer story arc 
has a specific context, a setting, a trigger, call to action. They've got stakes, something that they want and why it matters, and they've got obstacles. What stands in the way of your user achieving what they want? Your job is pretty simple. Just give the user what she needs to overcome her obstacles and complete her hero's journey. What's great about these is that they're really simple and quick. It's not like months of mushing together lots of data points into like a single persona. It's every single user that you talk to in these interviews can, produce, can result in one, two, maybe more uh, customer story arcs that uniquely describes their needs. So because it's simply simple and quick, you can build them by talking to individual potential customers, even if you're just talking to five people and not 500. And they also are great because they guide you towards asking the right questions. It's almost like filling in the blanks. Um, and because they're so succinct, you can make and mentally process customer stories for lots of different customers that you talk to um, instead of losing all that valuable information in three to five stereotypes. So, all right, so that's kind of a good uh, framework to think about as you're organizing your problem interviews. Um, so I wanted to share some tactical advice, like, you know, while you're in it. Right, so you'd probably be able to do these in just like 15, 30 minutes. Like, don't stress too much about it. Remember, it's easy to recruit people nowadays, so like you can kind of experiment and burn through and iterate on your questions and your interview process. You want to prepare some questions in advance. So here's a quick guide to interview questions. Um, so this is bad. Asking users to predict their behaviors is usually a really bad idea. Uh, because if people were good at predicting their own behaviors, gyms would not be getting so many annual memberships every January. Uh, people, <laughs> I totally go to the gym every day next week. Uh, there's also, uh, watch out for yes-no questions. These can be dangerous because it basically implies you're presuming answers and your customers will read into that. They're smart. It's too easy to create a bunch of leading questions that tell you more about your biases than your customers' needs. So try to avoid, to, yeah, try to minimize those. But let's get to the good stuff. You know, what do you use to do X? Tell me about the last time that you did why. These are great because you're asking people what they're doing um, and what they have done. Like, which recall is much easier than making predictions about the future for all of us. Um, and it gives you insight into what matters enough to people that they're doing it right now. And, you know, in terms of <laughs> objectively the very best questions that you can ask, well, those are always the why questions. Every time, right? Every time somebody gives you an interesting response, you always, always follow up with why because that's the question that gets you the stakes, the goals, the motivation, the purpose. So throughout this process, you know, we call them interviews, but really it's more of a chat. Don't be afraid to get off script sometimes. Use what you learn as you're trying out new questions during one interview to improve your next. Um, and then one last, you know, be human, be curious. So there's one last thing about successful problem interviews that you should think about. Um, so we all know from Eric that we need to get outside the building, talk to customers instead of just guessing what they need at our desk. It's great advice. But I'd also encourage you guys to take one step further. Get inside their building. And what I mean by that is you shouldn't just be talking to customers. You should be trying to get inside their world. Don't just listen. Look. Get into their context and look at things from the inside. Because what you see people do speaks way more loudly than what they're going to say. Uh, you know, if, it, if you can be physically present, that's fantastic. Even if you can't, like, and you know, your customer is on the other side of the country, the other side of the world, ask for artifacts, what people are actually doing, the outputs of their work that they actually care about. For example, when we interviewed like, community managers, we would pour over their Twitter, Facebook, like, Instagram feeds that they were managing. 
and we can actually dissect and see what posts got the results that they wanted. And while they told us, like, you know, oh, a lot of people were telling us, like, oh, graphics are really important for our social posts, they often didn't have very many. So, and they didn't really, it's hard, to, and they would, um, and then, but seeing from how much content they were creating from their own, on their own, looking at these artifacts, we could see that, like, they were constantly interacting to and replying to the community, like, posts and tweets every, like, few hours or a few minutes. So it was clear, like, they didn't have time um, to, to build the graphics that they were saying they wanted to make. Uh, so remember that you should try and not just talk to people, but get inside their building and really observe their context. Okay, so you've done a handful of customer problem interviews. You should have tons of great notes with verbatim quotes and valuable qualitative data. And now you have these, some customer story arcs. From here, you're gonna find patterns and try and simplify. But quick, so quick little break here. Uh, I'm gonna make a confession. Uh, a terrible confession, because uh, we were actually, I was talking about infographics before, we were totally, completely wrong. Nobody we talked to had big problems making infographics. Everyone said they're cool, we called it, people are really nice, but they either didn't need to make them, like we don't have enough numbers to share, maybe someday if we collect enough for our annual report, that'd be cool, or they didn't have any unmet, mean, unmet needs around making them. But yeah, we make them all the time. We have a designer on staff who is responsible for infographics and puts ours together every month. She's amazing. It's like, okay, there's not really a problem there. So for folks that we were talking to, this just wasn't something that they needed often. And this was disappointing, but it was a key insight because in about a week of talking to people instead of months of building something, we realized that we were probably a little bit on the wrong track. And we had tons of specific real customer story arcs that captured real contexts, motivations, and problems. And these arcs are succinct enough that we can actually lay them out side by side in a single spreadsheet or a single page and really take it in. And that's when patterns emerge. There is this customer story arc that kept on recurring. People talking about how they'd like to focus more on images, but it was like too hard to make them. People talking about like these really simple things like, oh, I try to make them on my phone because the response has been great, but like I haven't even tried to create them because that's too hard and like these powerful tools. Um, people talking about, you know, what like wishing that they could do this because they're getting these great results every time they post an image with their blog post, but it takes too long to do every single time they make a post. Right? So the same story arc shows up over and over again. It's basically this: several times a day while managing my organization's social media feed. I want to create images so I can get people to engage more with their posts, right? So it wasn't complicated infographics, but quick bite-sized pieces of tiny visual content that they wanted to accompany their posts. And they would tell us why, like what were the stakes? One person mentioned like the posts that they had on Twitter with images would get like 150% more likes and retweets than posts that were just text. It's like, oh, that's really, that's a really interesting like motivation. Totally makes sense why you would care so much about this. But at the same time, there were obstacles. It was too hard. I don't have time. And we would see that again, like, because if you know that every time you put an image with a tweet, you get 150% more engagement, and that's what you're being measured on, but like you almost never do it, like there is a disconnect. Um, so in one week, before we invested in building anything, we'd been able to pivot from this idea that we discovered didn't solve a problem to a very clear, specific problem for real people. An easier, faster way to create repeated, professional-looking images to stand out on social media, right? Okay. So now we're gonna get to actually build something and test it. Um, so what's the question we ask here is, what's the simplest thing that might possibly answer our question? 
usually I, have a, I kind of have a bias. Um, the simplest solution is usually the right one. But the key thing is, even if you're wrong, it's the much faster one to fix and learn from. So that's a useful lens. So here's the embarrassing thing that we built in a couple days. Um, this is our little concierge experiment. Uh, this, the actual experience thing is on the left. So it's this web page. It's basically a web form where people could request these like Twitter optimized images for free. To keep it simple and fast to recruit users and get feedback, we focused, simplified, and just focused on Twitter for now for these initial tests. And there was a box where people could describe the image they wanted, just like typing in, like, I want this. And then our designer would actually hand create the image that they wanted and send it back to them within 24 hours, right? We knew we didn't want to be able to ask follow-up questions, so we made sure we got their Twitter handles and email addresses. And then we included some examples based on the problem interviews and what we've been seeing uh, as the artifacts before of social graphics people might be asking for to give them a sense of what we were offering. Because like, then you know, this is actually like the best deal ever, right? Because we're actually giving people like a professional free graphic, <laughs> graphic designer uh, worth, uh, that can make any kind of image they wanted for Twitter, right? Like, Infographics, photo retouching, cutting edge Photoshop, compositing, vector art, flat design, custom photography, handcrafted topography, anything you want. Like, that's amazing. Um, so what did people actually ask for? Um, well, so first of all, uh, good news is we actually did have some decent activation rates. There's some uh, people were coming to the site, they were actually submitting the form. That was a good indication of positive signal. The funny thing is, the, the thing that people asked for, we gave them this like graphic design genie that would give them anything, uh, is they asked for this. Please put this text over this photo. Thanks. Over 50% of the requests were all for the same thing. Our professional amazing graphic designer was so disappointed. Um, really? I'm, I can make you a king. I can make you anything. And you ask me for this? Um, and, and worse, while a decent percentage of people tried it and activated it, so we actually, you know, they sent in the request and our designer made them this awesome, amazing graphic. The conversion rate of people who actually used the graphic that our pro graphic designer gave them was only 5%, right? Not great. And this added to the depression of our amazing graphic designer. It's like, why don't people like me? Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that was a low point. But we followed up with customer solution interviews, right? Because again, we built, we just had, we were having chats with people, 15 minute chats people are willing to do uh, in follow-ups. And so we asked lots of why questions and it became clear what happened. One, the image that they got didn't match their expectations. Somebody would say like, oh, could you please put this quote about uh, carbon, uh, about global warming on this picture of a train? And our designer would send a picture of a, a nice quote on top of a locomotive and they're like, no, I was looking for a picture of a subway or public transit. It's like, oh, well, okay. Um, and that happened all the time. Two, there's a huge gap between the thing that they wanted to, t when they wanted to tweet and when they got their image, right? 24 hours later is like pretty amazingly fast for a free professional graphic designer like who's doing things by hand. That's way too much time if you're talking at the pace of social media. People wanted to like, had an idea, they wanted to respond to an event, they wanted something out super quick. So that, after that first task, we're kind of like, okay, that's really useful and good to know. So we updated our hypothesis and tried again. This time, we had Spruce 2.0, which was, all right, this time thing is important. So we're gonna help people make social graphics in seconds. And this is what it looked like. Again, it's radically simple as you keep it. People could type in their text, 
Um, you can search for a Creative Commons picture and you know uh, and pick it pick it directly, so that way people can get exactly the train that they wanted uh, in real time. We would actually dar automatically darken the background image to make sure the text was always visible, which is like the cheesiest thing you, a designer can do to make text visible on an image. But that's what we tried. Um, and then people can immediately download their image and share it at Twitter-ready Twitter -ready resolution. Right? And it worked. Activation increased by nearly five times. People really started using it. So this is a great point. And so now we're going to iterate, right? Because iteration makes everything better. Uh, just like when you're playing with Legos, like you don't know exactly what it, the skyscraper is going to look like, but you take pieces off and you put pieces on, and you'll end up building a skyscraper without crazy directions or a blueprint. And so by the tenth week, um, after a number of different sprints and iterations, we got through about five learning cycles trying different things. We ended up learning that we needed to make we made it easier to share. We added font themes so that people could ha have a different image and like stand out in different ways. We let people reposition things so they can uh, fit text next to faces and not cover up a face. Made it faster to share. Little things like that. We ended up seeing the highest activation rates for a new creative tool that we'd ever seen. Um, and Spruce actually made it to the front page of Product Hunt. And in fact, at the time, it became Product Hunt's 14th most upvoted product of all time. It's kind of crazy, because all it does is put text on top of images. Um, but social and community managers loved it. Uh, you know, if I could have a dollar for every time I've done this in Photoshop, um, people, like, and people were just, yeah, using it for all their communications like as they're managing their social feeds. Um, other communicators were using it too. The founder of Reddit, Alexis Ohanian, became a fan and started tweeting images about like what he was doing in Tokyo because it was, and he was actually getting a higher response rate to those tweets using Spruce than the ones he would normally send out, which is pretty cool. Um, and it even inspired some incredibly popular clones. And a well-known social media startup actually offered to acquire us, not knowing that we work at Adobe. So, <laughs> so that felt pretty flattering. Um, <laughs> but long and short. Through empathetic design and applying Lean Startup together, in just 12 weeks, we found product market fit. So what happened to that little stealth Lean Startup project? Uh, well, it defined a whole new target customer for us, this re of repeat, communica repeat communicators, like community managers. It highlighted their problems, and it showed us how we can solve them. Uh, it also let people share very important true facts about Welsh corgis. Um, um, and yeah, Project Spruce, creating so social like, ready images in seconds, yeah, became the roadmap for Adobe Spark Post, um, the latest insanely loved product in the Adobe Spark family. Sure we launched okay. it this year, and Spark is now used by millions and millions of people around the world to share their stories and get attention. Uh, and it's solving people's problems. Folks love it. Um, so it's a testament to great folks, including David, okay. Scott, Faye, and our lean startup team, the hard work of so many other passionate people at Adobe and customers that shared their stories with us. It speaks to how constraints can drive clarity and creativity for so many people, organizations, and causes. Um, and it reminds us about empathy. Empathy is about standing in someone else's shoes, feeling with his or her heart, seeing with his or her eyes. Empathy is what makes the world a better place. So this all reminds us of how much we can grow and learn from applying the rigor of Lean Startup with very old and human things. Empathy, curiosity, and the desire to help other people overcome obstacles to achieve the things that they care about. So build empathy before you build product. Find, product, find patterns and simplify. 
and then iterate quickly. And that's how you'll solve the right problems and make the things that matter. So, thank you. Thank you.